Good morning, CCSC. My name is Patricia, and it is my privilege to be reading today's scripture, which comes from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Please give your full attention to the reading of God's word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. And now let's give our full attention to the preaching of God's word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Patty. <clears throat> we come to the second part of uh, the Colossian series. Uh, the grand theme is supremacy, and um, actually today's message is in, uh, entitled supremacy. So let's look upon these uh, six verses and what commentators will tell us from the outset. Uh, this is an ancient poem uh, that was crafted, and it's really broken down into two symmetrical parts, which we will unpack for the rest of the time that we have together, but it's a poem. First of all, it's a poem. And uh, why would people create poems of anything? Well, obviously, you want to remember things. You make it poetic because you want to be able to memorize it. You want it to, like, sear into your conscience, maybe even become a part of you. And, of course, with all the more important things, namely having to do with the identity and the work of Jesus Christ, of course, the early believers put this together. The Apostle Paul, of course, this was a well-known poem to make it memorable. Also, you make something poetic so that you can move people. Uh, poet, uh, poetry, poet writers are first and foremost moved and that you want other hearts moved by the majesty or the beauty of something. And of course, again, namely to do with Jesus Christ. Why would an apostle Paul and the early believers make poems? Most of all about Jesus Christ. You know, there has been throughout history a renaissance when it comes to the arts and literature and even entertainment, beauty, music, work. And of course, the early Christians gave the best of themselves to remember and to move other hearts for the worship and the glory of God. So to this poem, broken into two symmetrical parts. The first part is Jesus in his supremacy over all of creation. That's verses 15 through 17. Second part, the last three verses, 18 through 20, his supremacy in the church. His supremacy in the church. So first, his supremacy in creation. Second, supremacy in the church. Let's look at verse 15 once again. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
Now, of course, firstborn, that is going to sound like to us, he was the first to be born in a long line of human beings. It sounds like he was a creature. It sounds like he is created. But this is certainly not the case because he is the image of the invisible God and the rest of the passage will spell it out. This does not mean that Jesus had a beginning, that he was born like human beings per se in his eternal being. He is not a created creature. He's entirely something else. So how would you explain this? How would you want to know or unpack what this really means? We sang actually, Jesus, we want to know you more. Jesus, we want to know you more. There are two times in Colossians chapter one that if you want to know anything more about Jesus Christ, you must read and understand his word. We have to unpack puzzling things like this. Like with anything in life, to grow in love with anything that you would want to love more, you have to know more. You know, even last Friday it was, uh, my cousin Peter hosted a little party for the COT team, that's our ops team, some of the finest folks of the church who are just incredible in their labors. And I was talking to one guy and we got onto this topic of, you know, there's something happening this afternoon, kind of a big game and he's a huge fan. And half an hour passed by. I did not even really notice it was half an hour. We were just talking about a football game. And, you know, it's, it's remarkable. I don't know what you think about me in high school. I really didn't read any books, actually. That education kind of interest only turned on when I knew I was going to become a pastor and go to seminary. But I'm not saying the guy I talked to is also someone who doesn't read books. But, you know, we're like jocks who just love to talk about sports. And it's amazing. Even with jocks or cavemen, all of a sudden, if they like or in love with something, incredibly attentive like we become well read we become verbose we become articulate we actually know details we become experts in a certain field and my friends i want to tell you from the outset there is no way around loving loving jesus christ much more apart from knowing and learning and studying much more about him here is what the firstborn of all creation means in apostle paul's day the father his power his wealth his status everything all of his inheritance was given over to the firstborn so what this ancient poem is saying and describing from the outset is jesus is the son of god to whom god the father handed over everything God the Father gave everything about himself over to his son, another person, Jesus Christ. And oh, oh how God loves and prizes his own son. Uh, I've been going through uh, a chronological Bible, <clears throat> came across the plagues in Exodus this last week. And I was struck once again at how awful and terrifying the 10th and final plague was. The plagues were sent through Moses and Aaron, because a foreign kingdom had been brutally mistreating and enslaving God's own people, Israel, for like 400 years. And so the final plague was God coming upon, through the angel of death, an entire kingdom, warning that if you do not have blood on your doorposts, which is, of course, only given to the Israelites, 
this angel would take your firstborn son. Now, why would God be so furious? Why so terrifying? Not only would God take the firstborn son of every human family, but he took the firstborn of every livestock. And Exodus accords, there was wailing that erupted in the middle of the night, such as there had never been before. And it was so awful that the Egyptians themselves turned around to beg the Israelites to leave their homeland. Just get away from us. Why such terrifying fury from God? Well, because there's this little phrase in the book of Exodus where God says to Moses, Israel is my firstborn. Israel is my son. And so God just turns around. Oh, you, you take what is mine, I'm going to take what is yours. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This is justice. This is right. This is recompensation. This is the purity of the law. God came down and took every firstborn because anyone who comes against and mistreats and abuses his own firstborn, he will pay vengeance. But John chapter 316 reads for us, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only firstborn son, that whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus Christ, supreme in all of creation, the firstborn, because God has handed over everything to him, his own firstborn, God actually in the gospel has given him up because we have all continued to take what is not ours, but what is his. Look at verses 16 and 17 as we go further in this first half of the poem. For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the cosmic king. He's the Lord of all creation because he created all of creation along with God the Father. He was before all things. Again, he had no beginning and he has no end. But I want us to hone in on this little phrase, in him all things hold together, verse 17. In him all things hold together. This plainly means Jesus is not only creator of all things in heaven and on earth, everything visible and invisible. He is not only the creator, the author of all things, but he is the sustainer of all things. He is the one that continues all, the, all things. He's the one that actually holds it up to this day. How so? How does he do that? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Jesus again, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is not only creator, but he is the sustainer. He upholds all of it. How? Just by the word of his power. That seems to me that it's communicating that all of the cosmos, all of created order, operates in order 
that it's held in order, making life inhabitable, at least on planet Earth, all by and continually because Jesus speaks. By the word of his power, all of creation continues. This is quite a description of who Jesus Christ is. It puts him in a category all by himself, does it not? Oh, the rain, the rain for about two or three days, torrential. I had an East Coast friend who texted me, Harold, are you okay? Because over here from the East Coast, it looks like Mother Nature is taking a dump on California. He was all worried. And I said, well, in a lot of parts, it is very frightening. It seems like lives have been lost. It's crazy. But we're okay, at least in the suburb here, a torrential downpour. And as we were going through days of that, when it looked like the skies and our ground had no separation between them, it was just constant rain, like constant Seattle, okay? Constantly dark, constant kind of doom and gloom. It made me, of course, think of the flood. Now, here in Proverbs chapter if we would turn there. Here's an ancient, ancient wisdom literature that reveals something remarkable. When he, God, established the heavens, I, a personified, another person was there with God. I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I, again, I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Who could that I be? Daily his delight, a master workman, another person next to God, the creator of all. Of course, this is Jesus Christ, the son. Jesus Christ, the son, right here, smack dab middle of Proverbs chapter 8. And here are the questions that are lodged. Who does make the sky? How come the sky just simply doesn't fall upon us? Why does the rain ever stop? Who is the one that keeps the fountains of the deep down there and the skies firm up there? Who is the one to say, stop with the doom and gloom? The weather shall change. Who's the one that commands the seas not to transgress its boundaries, its natural commands? Who created it, but then who still commands it and continues it to this day? Colossians chapter 1, Proverbs 8, Hebrews 1, Jesus Christ the Son. In rain or shine, today the sun is shining. It's dry. It's kind of back to normal for California. A little cold in here, though. But rain or shine. The sun, the sun when it shines. You know this. I know this from children's books. The exact distance of the sun from planet Earth is why planet Earth is inhabitable by human beings. It's exact, precise distance. Any bit closer, too hot, we would fry. We would die because it'd be too hot. Any bit Further, the distance of the sun from planet Earth, we'd freeze to death. No closer, no further. Again, the questions are, if there is a God, the creator, who created the skies, the sun, and the seas, and all that we see, is that not also God, the creator, the one who commands and holds it all together? And in our passage, it reveals 
It is none other than Jesus Christ, the son who holds it all together to this day. Jesus, the Lord of all of creation, the cosmic king, supremacy. Now here's the second half. Jesus is also su supreme in the church. He's the Lord of all of recreation. Now I'm going to call it recreation because the church is a select chosen group of people whom God chooses to make new. He's not making you just a nicer, better version of yourself, but he is completely making you born again new. That's recreation. And the church is a group of people, a colony of heaven, who are the recreated people of God for a new heavens and a new earth. And who is supreme in the church? Just like in the cosmos, Jesus Christ himself. And just as Jesus holds all of creation together, he holds all of it together to this very second, this very moment. He also holds all the church together. All of his people together. For a new heavens and a new earth to come. Look at verses 18 and 19 of our passage once again. He, Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, again, that language, the firstborn from the dead, the first to be raised Yes, in a long line of all those he would raise again with himself, that in everything he might be preeminent, for, it's messing an F there, for, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. No part or attribute of God the Father is not in Jesus the Son. Jesus the Son is not barely God or partly God or demi-God or semi-God or almost God. But he is holy through and through, very God of God. The Nicene Creed from 325 when a bunch of people wrecked their brains together. Because what seems routine and irrelevant for us when we recite creeds just like poems where people painstakingly took time to craft scriptural teaching together in memorable, moving ways. That's why we recite creeds as well. In the Nicene Creed, they were fending off a horrible heresy called, uh, called uh, Arianism, Arianism, which doubted the divinity of Jesus Christ, the full deity of Jesus Christ. And when they put the Nicene Creed together, there's this one little phrase that says, true God from true God. True God of true God. And what this is, is Christian people coming together so that we can remember what is precious and true and still move all hearts for the worship of the true and living God so that none would be deluded or tempted or tricked and fall away. The fullness of God dwelt in him, Jesus Christ. Oh, and then this other little phrase here. Verse 18. In everything he might be preeminent i mean certainly he should be right <laughs> jesus created all things he commands and holds all of the cosmos together jesus created and started and holds all of the church together well then of course in my little life who else should be preeminent the one and the only one who will hold it all together. 
My friends, I've learned many, many times, usually the hard way, that anything you try to turn into Jesus, anything you treat or expect to take the place of Jesus, and what I mean by that is anything or anyone else that becomes supreme other than Jesus will turn against you, let you down terribly, and die along with you. Anything or anyone else we try to replace Jesus with, anything or anyone else we expect and want so much for that person or thing to replace Jesus, actually will never hold up and will never hold on to you because nothing will fulfill the job description laid out solely for Jesus, namely, supremacy. Supremacy. Not your kids. Not your kids' performance. Not your performance. Not your productivity level. Not even in this day and age, which is a good emphasis, great emphasis, mental and holistic health. But if that becomes everything to you, if that becomes supreme to you, I assure you, that will not hold you up and hold you together. For some, it's romance, the state of your marriage or getting married, income, financial security, luxurious escapes. Again, well-being and being well thought of and well spoken of by other people. Do you not know, my friends, in him, all things hold together and in everything he might be supreme because only he can handle that job and only he can turn around and not let you down and die with you, but actually he will rise and raise you up with him as well. You know, there's been some questions that always swirled throughout history. You know, these early Christians along with the apostle Paul, they so wanted to believe that Jesus was divine and majestic, risen from the dead, that they made it up. They were projecting, you know, they had these kinds of trippy, you know, hallucination, uh, hallucinations. They, 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 they imagined these things. They're sensationalizing it. Well, maybe. Maybe this is just the Apostle Paul and all the early believers. Well, let's turn to Jesus Christ himself. Was Jesus Christ self-aware of his own identity? Was Jesus Christ ever publicly on the record identifying himself in such a way in such superlative terms? Just two examples here. In John chapter 18, when a whole mob, Roman soldiers came out to arrest Jesus. By the way, that's a little strange. An armless, defenseless man in a garden with three other guys. And Judas Iscariot has to bring a bunch of soldiers well, because they all instinctively knew during his lifetime, everyone was wary of him. There was a certain aura or energy or vibe, you might say, that was given off that they would not dare just try and come and arrest him peacefully this day. So as the, as the soldiers gathered and they were trying to arrest him, in the English, it's three words, but in the Greek, it's just two. Jesus says, I am he. I am and John records 
all the soldiers were just thrown to the ground. You know what Jesus did? As soon as he revealed his identity just a little bit, you would say he flexed just a little bit. And when Jesus flexed his actual being, who he really is, full-grown soldiers collapsed. How about this passage in Luke chapter 10, verse 18? One of the most uh, just intriguing passages. The previous verse, the disciples of Jesus are boasting about, we cast out demons. Jesus, I can't believe these evil spirits obey us at our command. They flee, they shriek. And then Jesus responds with this in verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's a, kind of like, I'll do you one, one better, just a little bit better. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What? When was this? Where was this? How is this? Can you explain? What did it look like? Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was absolutely self-aware of who he was, what he came to do, and how it would all end, at least in his human life. Let me just ask a question that may try to just bring this together. Why was Jesus crucified? He broke no laws. Josephus, church historians, early fathers, read them. He was not a criminal per se. But he broke a religious law. He was guilty and the most offensive in the religious circles. He was a blasphemer. Because Jesus publicly, unequivocally, clearly, repeatedly, and unashamedly claimed to be equal with God. And when that religious offended crowd riled up the Roman authorities, this is why he ended up publicly splayed out upon a cross. So what do you do with someone who is supreme in Jesus Christ today? What can you possibly do with him today? C.S. Lewis, of course, gave it best. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Any human being who unequivocally, repeatedly, publicly claims to be God, you have at least two first options. Number one, the greatest fraudster humanity has ever known in all of history. Bernie Madoff, is in elementary school compared to what Jesus is getting away with here. He is either the greatest deceiver, fraudster human beings have ever seen because millions bend their knee and confess he is Lord. Or option number two, he is out of his mind. He's psychotic. He's not well. Or if you believe in evil spirits, he's been overtaken and possessed by the devil himself. You must make your choice. Those are your first two options. Either this man was and is the son of God, there's your third option, 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that, op- he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Liar, lunatic, or maybe he is Lord. The Lord to whom every knee should bow and lives should be given over to in worship and in surrender. Our last verse of our passage, Lord of the cosmos, Lord of the church, Lord of creation, Lord of recreation, last verse, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. My friends, a sad, sad, ultimate and spiritual and eternal reality comes to us right after this verse. In the following verses, it says, we are all naturally alienated, hostile in our minds, doing evil deeds, doing evil deeds, because deep down, we all want to replace God with ourselves. Deep down, everyone wants to rule the world, an old lady song. Everyone wants to reign supreme until the one who is supreme, the ruler of the entire cosmos, comes and breaks himself, splits him apart, and gives up his life for you by his blood. And only by his blood shed enemies become friends with God. Hostilities are crushed and put at peace now with God. You can be made right with God, reconciled with God by the cosmic creator shedding his blood for creatures who insist they want nothing to do with him. But Jesus is saying, I want everything to do with you by his blood. How many movie scenes are there where, you know, criminals are just scrubbing as hard as they could, trying to get rid of the blood on their hands? As if you could wipe away the blood and just wipe away all the guilt and shame too. How many people suffer among us, around us, maybe in us? Substances, alcohol, ecstasies, escapes because you want to calm your conscience, that broken conscience. You're running away or trying to forget and alleviate that trauma or that terrible pain. There are people who run into religion and get really awfully energetic and busy and obsessive. And they, some of them, actually literally give up their blood, sweat, and tears to make up for what we all know deep down in our hearts, evil deeds, hostility toward God, alienation in our minds, doing what we want to do because we want to reign supreme. But my friends, this morning, I want you to know, no other blood, no other blood in all the world, yours or mine or even of the angels, can wipe you clean. 
No other blood is as pure. No other blood is as powerful. No other blood is as valuable because this is the blood of someone who is supreme, equal with God. No other blood will make you whole through and through. And when you simply ask and pray to Jesus, Jesus, wipe me clean. Take what I deserve. Take all that I deserve because of my crimes and sins. Take it upon a cross. Die in my place. Give me your blood and you wash me clean. I assure you, anyone who's cleansed by Jesus in that way, he changes you. He'll change you for good. He'll change you forever. All you need to do is ask. Pray to Jesus Christ, Jesus, wash me and forgive me in your blood. And if you say you're a believer today, a worshiper, a follower of Jesus Christ, as I do, but how often do we forget how prone we are to become fearful, fret, lose our minds, get cynical, or maybe even disobedient, just flat out disobedient to God for a season. Can I remind you this day? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. Who? Christ Jesus. And if he who has the whole world in his hands, and he is the one that upholds it to this day, Will you not trust your little life into his hands as well? Trust him. If you trust him, you will obey him. He who has the whole world in his hands, will he not take the whole of our lives in his hands and handle it so much better than you and I? And if he is the Lord of creation as well as the Lord of the, the church, Christ Jesus the one and the only who is supreme in the church, in him all things, in him all things are held together. You know, the reason why Jesus Christ, not only just by identity and he deserves it and by definition, of course, he should be central to every church. I'll tell you why, another reason why he has to be central to every church. He's the only one that'll tell you I promise to have and to hold you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and in life and in death. Whatever may come, I'll love you without end. Christ Jesus will never, ever stop loving his church. That's why he's the Lord of the church. And that's why he's the only one who will hold the church together as long as a church loves him and trusts him above all else. Christ Jesus, supreme supremacy. My friends, all the world revolves around him. Maybe your life and my life should too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to trust. We come to ask you for cleansing by your blood. 
We come needy, disordered, broken, fallen apart. But oh, how we thank you. God, you sent Christ Jesus for you so loved the world. Would you make us new? Would you hold us now? And would you continue to hold us together for your glory, for the joy and the good of your people until we see you again face to face? Oh, hear us, we pray. Let me just give you these moments to respond in prayer with me and we'll sing this final song of response.